Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey PDO Cast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me back by popular demand, the one, the only, Jeff Merrick. Jeff, what's going on, man? So uh, you got my wife's email then? When I take it? <laughs> Is that the popular man? Get him out of the house or get him down to the basement to go do a podcast with you? Well, that's yeah. good. You respond well, to your fans, Dimitri. That's well, good. Well, I mean, I've, I've, I've heard that you also have your own little podcast going on and, and you do some things bit. on the side other than your hockey PDO cast appearances. That, uh... You know what? I kind of – it's funny because my wife asked me this uh, a while ago. She's like, what's happening with your career? You seem to be doing like a million different things. And mm. I'm like, I've kind of looked at it now as I need to – considering how media keep shrinking and getting smaller and smaller. Uh, I, I'm kind of looking at my career now like a venture capitalist in that you invest in about 100 things hoping that two will pay off. Yeah. So I'm trying to do is, it's like shotgun style of work. Try to do as many things as you can and try to keep yourself employable. Well, the reason the media is shrinking is because you're just taking all the jobs. Uh, no, that would be Gord Stellick these days. That guy, I swear, does not sleep. Between hosting the morning show on NHL radio, doing pre and post game for the Toronto Maple Leafs, filling in on Hockey Central and uh, doing various other radio and television shows. I swear he's a vampire, that the man just doesn't sleep at all. I've never, come to think of it, I've never seen Gord Stalick's shadow. So maybe there is something to that. Yeah, that's possible. Um, okay, so let's, uh, let's, let's get into it. I, I don't know what we're necessarily going to talk about, but uh, we're going to riff a little bit here. I think that the, the first thing we could start with is... Sure. Uh, the past couple of weeks have been, I don't know, do you feel that if you feel the same way, but the past couple of weeks have been really, really just kind of a grind for me where I think after we reached that mid-March point, I was like, okay, I'm definitely ready for these games to really start mattering here and for the playoffs to come around. And I don't know, maybe it's been like this for years, but this year in particular, just kind of hammering home the idea that 82 games is just way too long. I wonder if that's a byproduct. I think a lot of people have felt that way too. And I know I've felt it as well. A lot of people around the shop that I talk to have. I wonder if that's a byproduct of a dud deadline. Mm. That normally trade deadline gives you that, you know, you sort of always look for benchmarks and little moments where you're going to get a push and you're going to get a boost. And normally trade deadline does that. A bunch of guys change jerseys. There's some new excitement. How are they going to mesh? All the games... Although they're not new, there's a little freshness to them. Like every every you know playoff contender gets a fresh coat of paint, right. and maybe considering how the trade deadline this year was 
pretty soft, although we did have the volume of trades. We didn't have anything, you know, jaw dropping or, or staggering, at least not a deadline. We had before that, you know, Andrew Ladd being the, the number one uh, candidate there. I wonder if the, 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 the weak trade deadline had anything to do with that, but they're definitely right, Dimitri. Like there was that vibe post trade deadline and, and even heading into, uh, you know, the, the, the final few games of the season that, you know what, let's get this over with and let's get the games meaning something. I wonder if that's just because, you know, we've seen pretty much the entire set teams for close to 82 games in a row now. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've got this love triangle going on in the East with the Flyers and the Bruins and the Wings, and that's been interesting, particularly lately since they've sort of been playing each other back and forth. But, I mean, that none of it seems very consequential, right? Like, I don't think any of those three teams are going to wind up making some sort of serious noise and making it to the Eastern Conference Finals or representing the East in the Stanley Cup Final. Like, yeah. it's not like even last year where you sort of, everyone was just waiting for the Kings to turn it around, and that was an interesting story. And it felt like there was more going on this year. Just like, I don't know, it's it, it, we're never going to wind up seeing the, the the schedule reduced because it'd be pretty much just the owners flushing money down the toilet like that's never going to happen but it's such a shame right because you think about it it's like okay we yeah. could rem- if we removed even like let's say cut it down to 75 games for each team all of a sudden you can remove a couple of back-to-backs and there's going to be fewer injuries and the performance is going to rise and it would just be funner for everyone involved but uh I guess that's just not the way the business works I- i'm with you but it's not just the owners too it's the moment the players signed off on salary linkage to revenues all of a sudden the idea of a shortened schedule is right off off the table because not only do the owners don't want it uh the players don't either i mean less games means uh, less revenue for them when it comes time to to splitting up the pie at the end of the season so it's interesting because i've always felt that the 82 game season is is really considering how the game is played and the speed at which is played and the rate of injury and uh, how tough it is to recover uh i'm with you i think we'll get overall a better quality of hockey if you reduce the schedule i just can't see the owners or the players going for it and the one thing that i always at the beginning of the year i always say the same thing if i could say one thing to gary bettman every single year it will be this get your game out of june mm. whatever it takes get the game out of june have this thing wrap up sometime in in mid to late may but the minute the players signed off on linkage there's there's no way that's going to happen it's only going to be more and more and more and try to Try to get as much revenue in the uh, in the system is, as possible. Is that really the one thing you would say to Gary Bettman? Well, there's a few things. <laughs> a few but that, more that, colorful that, things that you well, can't say on the podcast? I'm, I'm, I'm in the minority, I think, on this one because I don't think that he's uh, the monster that many people make him out to be. Mm. Um, I know people still don't like the lockouts. I get that. I, I, I understand that um, at times he can have a personality um, that's grating. Uh, I, you know, some of the, the interviews... Um, that he's done, I know, get on a, a lot of people's nerves. I know Canadians tend to get their back up uh, about the commissioner. Um, but I, I, for my money, you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone remotely as close to doing the amount of overall good that Gary Bettman has done for the National Hockey League. And I know maybe I have to turn in my citizenship when I say that because you're a Canadian, Merrick. How can you say that? I, I honestly, I, I see that the, the commissioner – you know, behaving like anyone would do in his in his position. Like, let's not forget, he's not a president. Like, this isn't Frank J. Calder. This isn't Clarence Campbell. This is a commissioner who, yes, he sets the agenda at this point. Yes, he is the most powerful man in the game, but he still does work for the owners. Yeah. And as such, you know, he has his marching orders and he has a job to do. And I defy you to find anyone 
who would behave otherwise. And that includes you and me, Dmitry Filipovich. Were we given that job? Yes. Well, I mean, yeah, that, that is an important distinction where he's working for 30 of the richest people in the world who yeah. have different objectives than you, let, I, or and most of the other fans do. Let, let me ask you this question. Mm. At any of those owner meetings, mm. how many times do you think the conversation has revolved around mm. How do we get more money in the pockets of the players here, boys? Yeah, yeah probably probably not very many. <laughs> exactly, exactly zero. Yeah. So it's a fight, and that's you know the, the the nature of how this thing is set up to begin with. Yeah, no, I mean, and and it's sort of a thankless job. Where I mean, I guess we're seeing it a little bit in the NBA with Adam Silver, where he he took over for David Stern, and he sort of has a very high approval rating right now. But if you're in the job for long enough, eventually, totally. you know, someone's going to have to take the fall for anything that happens. Yeah, and and you wonder too, you know, sort of what's the uh, what, what's the end game for for the commissioner right now? Like, clearly he's in the process of writing the legacy. Um, he wants to be there for the 100 year anniversary. I mean, he wants to, uh, to be the commissioner of record when that happens. Um, you know, starting to write you know various legacy positions in the NHL. Um, I still think one of the the the, the final. Maybe the, one of the final actions that the commissioner does in, in his role before he rides off into the sunset is hand the owners a billion dollars and say, boom, there's two teams in Toronto. Drop Mike, check me out on Facebook. Um, but I, I'm, I'm curious to see now because, you know, we see it with, you know, you look at someone like David Branch, um, who runs the CHL and the Ontario Hockey League as well. He's very much writing what his legacy is going to be. And a lot of that revolves around cleaning up that game, whether it's uh, through fighting, whether it's uh, you know getting the, the financial house of all of his franchises in order in the Ontario Hockey League, uh, expansion um, into, uh, into, into further expansion into the United States and securing those markets. Like all, all these guys towards the end, you know, they stop just worrying about the nickels and dimes and start to worry about how history is going to remember them. Mm. And I'm pretty sure that somewhere in the back, in the back of, of, of Gary Bettman's brain is he doesn't want to be remembered as the lockout commissioner that I think he wants to be remembered for more than that. He may want to be remembered as a lockout commissioner for the owners, but as far as the great book of hockey and how that's written, I'm pretty sure Gary Bettman doesn't want you know to be called the lockout commissioner as part of his legacy. It's there, but I don't think he wants it to be the overriding narrative or the overriding story. Yeah. Um, all right, let, let's talk about P- Patrick Law a little bit here because sure. Gears where, uh, speaking of legacies, um, <laughs> you, you, one. you're, you're, you're a good person to talk about this with because you follow the CHL pretty closely and were yep. aware with the job he did in, in Quebec in the, in the queue. And, uh, so it's interesting because anytime I ever comment on the Avs or Patrick Waugh, basically, uh, the responses are decidedly split into two camps, right? There's people that agree with me and then there's people that live in Denver. And <laughs> don't worry, and, I get I get it on our podcast too. And, and time, trust so, me. like after Matt Duchesne scores his thirtieth goal and celebrates, and you know, God forbid, someone have fun or or try to take something positive out of this dreadful season Colorado's had. Uh, and, and I wrote about this today, but what fifteen guys scored thirty goals last year, and twenty two or so are, are scoring it this year. Like it's a it's a it's a legitimate accomplishment. It's not what it once was, where it's like oh everyone's scoring thirty goals. What's the big deal? And it's the first time he's done it in his career. So I mean, I. I I thought it was completely silly to kind of uh, get mad about that. There's many other things that he could have kind of picked apart, but he chose that, I guess. It's very, very locked in on this idea of character and playing the right way, which teams that are losing generally do. But um, and so what happened was after I started talking about this, people were like, 
oh, like you, you've got it all wrong. Like Patrick Waugh is actually a great player's coach. And then I was reminded of how uh, Louis Domingue, when he was playing, or Domingue, sorry, when he was playing for uh, Quebec, uh, I think it was the, the playoffs in the queue. He sort of had a rough series. I don't, I don't even know what the details were, but Patrick Waugh was calling him out about it. And then he, he fired back on him on Twitter and called him one of the worst people he's ever met. And I don't know, like, am I wrong here? Is this not a trend where Patrick Waugh seems to really just kind of... Uh, pick apart his players rather than ever focusing on the on the stuff he's doing wrong himself uh there's a lot there let's begin with um let's begin with patrick wall at the quebec ramparts mm-hmm. and with the quebec ramparts uh he was exceptional he was outstanding he won a memorial cup he put together outstanding teams like year in and year out the quebec ramparts were a powerhouse in the qmjhl uh, you can do that in junior when you can, um, you know, uh, hang the the NHL carrot in front of players. Uh, you can do it when you're not just the coach, but you're also the general manager and you're also the owner as well. Um, so he exerted, you know, the most amount of control he had over all of those players and even over television as well. I don't know if I've ever talked about this this publicly, but for the longest time at Sportsnet, we would always get criticized for not having Quebec Ramparts games on television. Uh, I don't think I've ever told this story before. I wonder if I'm allowed to. Oh, okay. I'm going to tell a story. So we're no for one listens to this thing. Don't worry about oh, it. Oh, yeah. No one, especially not at our shop, Dimitri. So, <laughs> um, so for the longest time, we, we never had Quebec Ramparts games on Sportsnet. And they were a powerhouse team, and they had superstars, and they were going deep in the playoffs, and they were winning Memorial Cups. Uh, and it was like a dynamic team and a superstar, you know, uh, sexy NHL name behind the bench. Uh, it was a great building to shoot in, as we saw last year when they had the, uh, the Memorial Cup. And the question was always, why isn't Sportsnet showing Quebec Ramparts games? And it's a legitimate question. It certainly was. And we used to get asked it all the time. And we used to have to always tiptoe around answers and always oh, scheduling this. And, oh, we have this other game on Friday Night Hockey. And, well, we were just in the queue last week. And you sort of tiptoe around. The real issue is that Patrick Waugh the owner of the Quebec Ramparts. The minute you take a game national, you surrender all your rink board advertising. And Patrick Waugh didn't want to do that. Mm. So there you go, folks. The real behind-the-scenes story of why we never had up until yeah, until Patrick Waugh sold the team. We didn't really have Quebec Ramparts games on Sportsnet. Mm. Um, but, I mean, there's that kind of control that Patrick Waugh had over that organization. Um, a lot of players, like, like with any coaching situation, a lot of players will love you. A lot of players will hate you. Louis Domingue didn't have exactly the greatest experience. But, you know, if you talk to some more of the – you know, some of the, the, the players that you would think would have, you know, certain challenges, um, and Alexander Radulov and Mikhail Grigorenko, you know, he was he was fantastic with those players. Mm-hmm. He was really great with those guys. Yeah, look at what he got out of Radulov. He got a Memorial Cup. Well, it was, like, he was always really great with those guys. But the problem to me with, with Patrick Waugh is, and we can get into the specifics of, of how he's handling the, uh, the, the, uh, the Quebec Ramparts, the Colorado Avalanche. But if you look at the history uh, of this game, Patrick Waugh has two things working against him. One, the, the list of goaltenders that turned into successful head coaches is short. Mm-hmm. It, it, I mean, you can count it on, on two hands. 
Goaltenders are, you know, it's the old joke, what do you call the people that athletes hang around with? Goaltenders. Goaltenders are a very unique creature in the game of hockey in that they don't necessarily have to understand how other positions work, how an entire game works. Generally, they spend their entire lives focused on stopping pucks. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Not creating offense, not defending, not breakouts, not in these types of things. You can learn it along the way. You can be successful with it up until a certain point. But when it comes to the NHL level, generally, goaltenders struggle uh, as, as head coaches. And we, maybe Emil Francis was, was the best one of the bunch. But generally, it doesn't really happen. The other thing he has working against him is, as a superstar, the list of superstars that have turned into head coaches right. in the NHL and found any success, whether it's you know Wayne Gretzky or, or Rocket Richard, who only lasted a couple of games with the Quebec Nordiques, uh, is even shorter than the list of, uh, of goaltenders turned head coaches. So right away, he's got history against them, not once, but twice. And... You know, early on, I talked to one of his, his players um, with Colorado. Early on, when he first took over the Avalanche, there was some success. And he was playing a really innovative style in his own zone. It was right out of the pages of junior hockey. He was playing man-to-man. Mm-hmm. You don't really see that in the NHL ever. Yeah. Every now and then, you'll sort of, coaches will, will go to it, but never for a full game, let alone a full period. But Patrick Wall was doing that. And I, I talked to one of his players at the end of the season. I said, what was up with that the first couple of months of the year, first couple of months of the season? And he said, yeah, it, it was it was kind of neat. It, it kind of made us feel like we were playing junior hockey again. We we're playing man-to-man in our own zone. He said, but the problem was, you know, after a couple of months, you know, the book was written on on how Patrick's playing in his own zone. Every other team started to set casual picks in the in the uh, in the defensive zone, and then all of a sudden, this you know revolutionary idea in the NHL wasn't really working anymore. Right. Um, and and since then, many have said you know after that, Patrick Wall was was kind of out of tricks. And I mean, you've talked about this plenty on this podcast, and various people have written about it as well. Um, there is no long term success when you consistently get roasted on shots uh, on shot on, on shots against your net. Right. Like when your when your shot differential is as steep as it has been the past few years with the Colorado Avalanche, you may win the odd game here or there. You may have the odd winning streak if the schedule allows, but long term success it is completely unsustainable. And so far, uh, Patrick Watt hasn't had an answer for it. As as, as for Matt Deshane, I understand how the hockey guy in him might not like that. It's a four nothing score at that point. Mm. And the hockey guy may say, you know what, kid, just bury your head. You know, 30 goals, that's great, but focus on, you know, focus on the uh, uh, the game that night, not the individual achievement. And it's a very natural thing for hockey people to feel that way. Right. I don't think it's a great thing for Patrick Watt to bring up, given the other problems that this franchise well, it's, has. It's one of those things where if there's like... Yeah, even if he was asked about it at the press conference, I could, that's the thing that, that really struck me about it. He wasn't asked about it. <laughs> right. He went out of his way to bring it up. Like well, it's one thing for someone to ask you, hey, what do you think of Deshane doing the big celly after he scored his 30th? And then you respond to it. It's another in the course of one of your answers to go out of your way to bring it up. That's what really struck me. Like it really bothered him. And it is at a time like that where I say to myself, here's someone who's looking for a distraction. Mm-hmm. Here's someone who's looking for something to get angry about so he doesn't have to address the elephant in the room. And that elephant's been there for a couple of years now. 
I think there's there's two layers that we can kind of discuss when evaluating all the problems that has had, right? There's the first part, which is the player personnel p- portion of it, and it's sort of still unclear to us how much of a role Patrick Waz had in actually assembling this team. I think we can sort of conclude from everything we've heard and read and and seen that he's at least been consulted on all the moves. Not everything's passed passed by him. Like he's been at least asked about it and given his two cents, if not actually pulling all the triggers and making the final decisions himself um well hang on just yeah. pa- pause on that for one second because the one area that we saw where patrick Waugh, although he didn't have influence on the pick because he didn't make it um but when you look at the 2014 drafts mm-hmm. all right um patrick Waugh wanted a defenseman uh their scouts gave the uh, the uh, the colorado avalanche connor bleakley instead mm. and we all know what happened between patrick Waugh and connor bleakley and how he went to war with the player right away and we knew that there was no future whatsoever for connor bleakley in the colorado avalanche organization and i think that is a direct result of patrick Waugh saying i don't want this player i want a defense it's funny at the memorial cup last year we talked to patrick and he said, listen, we need to start. Now, we were shocked because normally, you know, coaches, general managers always say we're going to draft the best possible player available mm-hmm. regardless of position. And Patrick essentially told us, no, we need to start drafting position. We need to start drafting from for a position because that's what we need. And we need defensemen right. in this organization, um, which is why, you know, they pulled the Ryan O'Reilly move. And they wanted to pull Zadorov, um, uh, Zadorov out of the Buffalo Sabres organization to get him there. Otherwise, they probably would not have drafted Miko Rantanen. Uh, was a tenth overall last year. They probably would have gone for defenseman. Okay, so let's assume. So there, there is there is there is some influence there from the coach. Yes. Okay, but let's assume that let's give Patrick Wall the benefit of the doubt here and say that all the bad moves that they've made in terms of in terms of signings. I mean, giving a, a ton of money to Francois Beauchemin and bringing in Brad Stewart and Jerome McGinley and all this stuff that hasn't really worked out. Let's say he had no part in that. Okay, so yep. just fully focusing on the job he's done as a coach, which is his job title. I, I have I I find it impossible possible to believe that let's say the Bruins missed the playoffs this year Claude Julien gets fired uh, and all of a sudden the Avs have a change of heart and bring him in next year with this same team they have right now I have no doubt in my mind that I don't think they'd necessarily be a great team all of a sudden but they'd at least become more respectable in the 5-on-5 game like they definitely wouldn't be the worst possession team in the league registering 44% of shot attempts or whatever like they'd at least hover closer to that respectable 48-49-50% range and, mm-hmm. and that speaks to the coaching job he's done, right? Like you were talking about the man-to-man coverage in his own zone, and you can pretty much watch any single Avs game they've played this year or even last year, and you look at it, and the defensive breakdowns in their own zone are just mind-boggling. It looks like it's a group of guys that's never practiced together. It's like they just came together for like a drop-in uh, beer league game, and all of a sudden they're like uh, lacking communication, and no one really knows where they're supposed to go. And I think... You can't you can't really blame that on the players. Like the the personnel and talent itself isn't necessarily great, particularly on the blue line. But it's not so bad that they all of a sudden have justification to be like the worst team in the league in terms of possession metrics. And I don't know. I think that falls solely on on Patrick Waugh. And I think that it's very fair to question the job he's done as a coach. Yeah, I don't disagree. I, if you're if you're going to be there to do the victory lap uh, when you win the Jack Adams, you have to also be there when people are saying, "What are you doing with this organization?" And I think that this team, and this is where you know, this is where we can curry favor with the Abs fans here, Dimitri. This team is a lot better than they show. 
Yeah. When when you look at the quality of player on this team, this team is a lot better um, than they show. I normally I always defer to composition over coaching uh, when it comes to teams. But when I look at the the Colorado Avalanche, I say to myself, "How is this team not better? Like not consistently better? You know, how is Eric Johnson? Uh, you know, uh, not better? How's you know Tyson, Tyson Berry is real good, but uh, I still don't think we've seen anywhere close to to the best that we're going to get out of Tyson Berry. Um, the one thing that really did set this organization back, and I understand why it happens because you get your back up about it, and you feel like you're going to war with the player, but you always have to remember you don't have to like someone to do business with them. Man, losing Ryan O'Reilly was tough for them. And I know the offer sheet really burned them and they, they hated it. And, you know, it's, it's, it's always interesting the way that, you know, when a, when a player gets, you know, sent packing, you know, the GM is quick to point out that, that it's a business. But when a player behaves as if it's a business, uh, the organization gets their back up and, and spurns them and then ends up making what will probably turn out to be a very misfortunate trade. Um, I, I look at the abs and I say, if, if you could put Ryan O'Reilly back on this team right now, Dimitri, even with Patrick Waugh behind the bench, how much better is the squad tomorrow? Right. Uh, no, d- definitely a lot better. And I agree with you where you go with roster composition over coaching because it's very easy to fix one of those things. But if you don't have the requisite players, there's not really much you can do. But the the kind of pause I'd have here is I'm I'm – just based on Patrick Waugh's sort of stature and the way he's regarded around Colorado, like I'm worried about for their sake, um, whether they're going to side with the coach over the players. And like, I, I wonder this summer, for example, I, I don't, you know, know anything that other people don't, but like, let's say a guy like Matt Duchesne, like what if they all of a sudden decide to kind of, he's not part of the solution and they trade him for 70 cents on the dollar for no reason. Like it's stuff like that where he could really kind of make an, a long-term impact here that they'll feel even after they finally realize he's been the problem in firing. You know what I mean? The minute after Patrick Waugh said that about um, Matt Deshane in this press conference, mm-hmm. if I'm a general manager, uh, I have Patrick Waugh on speed dial. Mm-hmm. Hey, yeah, you know what? That Deshane kid, where does he get off? What a head case. You know what? Let's see if he'll do any better in our program. We'll, we'll, t- <laughs> we'll take that headache off here. Yeah. We'll, we'll give it. Well, he, but here's the thing. I mentioned this when, when Patrick Waugh first came in. It's always challenging when you bring in legends. Um, Whenever you hire someone, I think in the back of your mind, you have to, and and everybody does, you have to say to yourself, okay, what's the exit strategy going to be here? Hmm. Like you can only, you're not, you know, it's not going to be a cradle to grave situation for Patrick Waugh behind the bench with Colorado. So what is our exit strategy? Somewhere down the road, Patrick Waugh will no longer be the coach of this team. Right. Like long gone, you know, are the, the Lindy Ruff days in Buffalo and the Barry Trotz days in Nashville. I guess you can say Jack Capuano with the Islanders now, too. But those days where, you know, you're the coach for, for 10 years. And I remember asking people like, OK, well, that's great that they've they've hired Patrick Waugh. What's the exit strategy? How do you have a, a graceful exit here knowing that he is a legend and how well he's thought of in Colorado? What do you do? And you wonder if any decision will be tied to any decision that Joe Sackick makes. Yeah. And if Joe Sackick decides that maybe he wants out, maybe this isn't what he thought this was going to be. Um, I don't think Patrick, I mean, if Patrick wants to stay in the NHL, I think that's clear. I think Patrick one day is probably going to coach the Montreal Canadiens. Mm. Uh, probably when Patrick decides he's ready. If not that, then when the Quebec Nordiques get their, you know, expansion slash relocation team, don't be surprised if it's someone like Patrick Waugh behind the bench, and maybe someone like Julien Brisebois uh, acting as the general manager. 
you always have to ask yourself, when you bring in a legend in a position as volatile as the head coaching position, what is your exit strategy? Like yeah, to your point, if Claude Julien becomes available um, the day after, you know, the the day after the Ottawa game on Saturday, yep. Claude Julien's available. Would the Avalanche be in a position to react quick enough to capitalize on that, or are they still thinking in their heads, "How do we do this with Patrick still here"? Uh, I, I definitely don't think they're in the position yet right now, as far as they're concerned, that they'd jump on that, right? Like they seem pretty committed to at least kind of bringing this back for another year, which is, I think is a mistake. But this could be a really good summer for for potential coaches, right? Like let's say the Blues lose in the first round to the Blackhawks. It's very easy to envision Ken Hitchcock being available. Say the Ducks yeah. the Ducks have uh, an embarrassing defeat or or even, you know, maybe they just lose again to the Kings in the second round and, and, they, and they decide, yeah. you know what? Like we've been really good for a few years here now, but there's only so far we can go with this incarnation of our team. Uh we're going to go with a different coach, which which would be a mistake in my mind, but it's very conceivable that could happen and all of a sudden Bruce Boudreau available so there's three guys right there that will pro- could very possibly be available just because of kind of uh just circumstances out of their own control but would all be vast improvements for like what like 20 teams so it, it's 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 gonna be a fascinating storyline to follow this and summer. yeah and, and ken hitchcock you know the one you mentioned right out of the gate i mean he may be you know one of the uh one of the finalists for the jack adams as well yeah of what he's done with the St. Louis. I mean, last year, you know, almost exactly a year ago, he was dead man walking in St. Louis as, you know, Ken Hitchcock sort of twisted in the wind and no one knew what exactly was going to happen to the St. Louis Blues. And then he ended up getting the, the one-year contract. What a season he's put together uh, for the St. Louis Blues. But you're right. If they get scotched in the first round, what happens to Ken Hitchcock? So out of all those three that you mentioned, so Claude Julien, Ken Hitchcock, and Bruce Boudreau, and, you know, the, 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 la- the, the first one is all about making the playoffs. The last two is about playoff success. Mm. Can you see either any one of those three in Ottawa? Oh man, haven't they already kind of committed to Cameron? And, and I say that no, as someone who no. they haven't. I don't think so. Mm. I, I think now the, the the issue there though is, I think this I, I counted this yesterday at work. I think this would be Brian Murray's seventh hire. Yeah. And they're still pay- they're still pay- paying Paul McLean, right? Like I, now, I, I can't see them paying the, three different coaches at once. I get I get that I, I, I get all of that, and I know that you know uh, Ottawa's you know not going to be a cap team. It's it's going to be a budget team, and you know the one place where you know just to be perfectly blunt, Ottawa's kind of gone on the cheap side of things is behind the bench. Like they don't have like but what's Claude Julien? A three three million dollar, three and a half million dollar coach at the Boston Bruins? Think Ottawa's gonna have a three, three and a half million dollar coach? Probably not. But if Eugene Melnick was serious and every you know every player will be evaluated and everything is on the table and this well then you know what? You can only go cheap on your coaches for so long. Until you're going to say to yourself, we have, like, if you're Eric Carlson, yeah, right? And Steve Eisman went to Just make Eric like, Carlson the coach. <laughs> just, just make Carlson the coach, <laughs> the captain, you know, <laughs> bottle washers, and bony driver, whatever. Yeah. Uh, do the whole and thing. And he's already doing everything for that team. Pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much. And, and he's got to be, he may be the most frustrated man in all of hockey right now. Yeah. Who's looking around and, you know, he sees a lot of, um, you know, there's, there's some younger players on that team that... That may not be as committed as Eric Carlson is, um, and he may see an owner who's not committed to, to, to spending to maximize his career. 
um, as you should, and, and and not investing in that that coach that they should probably have behind the bench. Well, I mean, um, l- l- think about it this way: like, look at that Atlantic Division, especially with with what happened to the Canadians this year, and and it being sort of wide open because of that, like. Eric Carlson's having this generational season for a defenseman and he's playing pretty much half of every game and they can't even string together a passable enough team around him to make it the playoffs like that that that's a pretty embarrassing situation. Yeah, that's why I think everything is on the table including the young guys uh for the Ottawa Senators this offseason. That's why I'm saying he's got to be the most frustrated man out there. Mm. Like he, I'm I'm sure like if, if you're Eric Carlson you're saying like this is the height of my power right now. And I'm going home, yep. you know, like it, it, it should have been like, you're right. When you look at the Atlantic, this should have been like Saturday afternoon. It should have been gigantic. Yeah. Like Saturday afternoon, Ottawa and Boston should have been an enormous game, not for one team, but for two teams. Mm. Right. Like that, that, that I, when I looked at the, the schedule around Christmas time, I was like, oh man, game 82 is huge. Yeah. You know, a lot of uncertainty in, in the Atlantic. You know, Ottawa's got a shot at this. This is great. Another master stroke, you know, another master piece of luck in the NHL. They've got Ottawa and Boston going in game 82, and it's a nice Saturday afternoon game. Oh, this is going to be spectacular getting you ready for Saturday nights. But not at all. And if you're Eric Carlson, how do you not go home this year and say, man, I'm being wasted here right now? Yeah. Completely wasted. Yeah, I'd be pretty irritated. Um, all right, let's uh, let's let's talk about the draft a little bit because I I haven't sure. had this discussion with you. I've brought it up a few times in past shows with other guests, but I haven't gotten your thoughts on it. Like, where are you at? Because there seems to be this very uh, strong and it's building in strength pushback against the the. The, first of all, the system and sort of this idea yeah. that it's incentivizing tanking and then the draft itself, where, which is where I'm at, where it feels sort of weird that I understand they're being compensated very handsomely for it, but that you're basically like taking 18 uh, year olds and, and forcing them to go to places where they might not necessarily really want to go on, on in certain occasions. When we talk about that, we tend to focus on the high end guys. Yeah. And we focus on, you know, where does Austin Matthews want to go? Where does Connor McDavid want to go? But, you know, where do some of the players, you know, lower lower down uh, in the draft? It's not as if they're going to be able to pick as well. So really when we talk about, you know, forcing players to go somewhere where they, they don't want to go, really only what we're doing is talking about the high-end guys. Those are the guys in the position to choose. Um, the other guys aren't necessarily in that. Like, there there, there is some... You know, philosophically, I had this conversation with Damien last year at the draft. Uh, geez, where was the draft? That's true. Uh, Sunrise, of course, yeah, in, in Fort Lauderdale. We had a restaurant after the draft on the Saturday, and we we're talking about, you know, with the salary cap, like, why do you even need the draft? All, all that the league is now is about, you know, managing resources. Everyone's got the exact same amount of money. Um, you know, why do we need to have a, a, a triple salary cap system? You know, there's the, there's a team cap, there's the individual player cap, and then there's the rookie cap. I mean, it's already triple cap. Why do you need that when you have a fixed amount uh, of money that every single team is, is allowed, is allowed to spend? Why not just, you know, make everybody a free agent and then on draft day slash signing day, you decide how much money you're going to spend to bring in young hockey players. Like I, I understand that, and then there's there is an intrigue there. 
Um, and, and I get that, and a lot of players may favor that. And I know a lot of really, really intelligent people around the hockey community think that that would be the saner approach. And it does feel uh, a little more egalitarian, although we only tend to focus on the high-end guys and where they want to play because they're the ones that would really be in the driver's seat by way of choosing because all the teams would want them. You can't say that about the players later on in the first round and uh, in rounds two through seven as well. Uh, but for me... Um, I, I think the NHL has every other league licked in two regards. One, the jersey. There is no finer hockey uniform than the hockey jersey. It is spectacular. Um, I also think they have them licked by being able to uh, to change players while the play is still going on. We can talk about that other today or another podcast. Mm-hmm. And the other, the other place is the draft, uh, specifically that first round. Uh, I love the way the NHL does it. Um, I think the drama with the announcing trades and the way they handle it is fantastic. Uh, the, the arena setting, it's almost to the point where, you know, I would, I would actually favor turning trade deadline day into a draft style TV event Mm -hmm. where, you know, that's the day where there's 30 tables in a rank. Like, Hey, who gets the, who gets trade deadline day this year? Oh, it's Columbus. So a nationwide, there's 30 tables and all the teams are there. And uh, by way of television drama, you know, you see Philadelphia picking up the phone and calling Anaheim or, or walking across to their table and having that conversation. And then Gary Bettman going up there to announce all the trades. I think it could be a wonderfully spectacular TV event. Mm-hmm. That's how much I love the way the draft is set up. Because the way the draft is done now in the NHL is not just about the kids and where they're going, but it's also another trade deadline day. And it's a trade deadline day that even spills into the Saturday. And even like we saw this year in in, uh, in Sunrise. Did you go to the draft? Were you in Sunrise last year? I wasn't. No, I went to the okay. Philadelphia one two years ago. Okay. So the, okay, the Philly one was an interesting one too because there were those deals on the table for Aaron Eckblad, the one from Tampa yeah. and the one from Philadelphia as well. So that got everything buzzing. And then there was the one owner that wasn't allowed onto the floor, which was interesting. And as we all heard, he was <clears throat> screaming at the general manager slash president of his uh, franchise, demanding to be let on only to see his president and general manager say, we don't have room for you here. We only have room for our scouts. And then that owner had to go up and, and watch the draft from a private box fuming. You can guess who that was. Um, but interesting in last year's draft on the Saturday, after everybody left, there was one table where everybody stayed and it was an argument. Like it was loud. It was shouting. It was screaming. It was fist pounding on the table. This is after all the cameras are off and everyone's tearing down. One team stayed. And this argument, we couldn't exactly hear what they were saying, but you could tell there was like everyone had a legitimate point to make. And it was an issue where everybody had dug in their heels and they were fighting for it. You know what that team was? Who? Pittsburgh Penguins. And I can't prove it and I don't know, but if I'm going to throw a dart and guess what the conversation was around, it's probably around Phil Kessel. Hmm. Because all throughout that, all throughout Sunrise in those two days was, is Pittsburgh going to pull the trigger on the Phil Kessel deal? Right. And it almost seemed as if they almost had the deal, and then they, they backed off of it. And then there was, at the table, everybody pounding their hands on, had their fists on the table, trying to make their point, both for or con for Phil Kessel. This is a long-winded way of saying, I can see both sides. Right. And at the end of it, though, maybe it's just the old guy in me. I love the way the draft is done. 
I really do. And, and it's one of my favorite days and it's a great tent pole event for the National Hockey League. Um, but I can, I can understand the people that say, hey, listen, man, it's all about managing your resources. It's all about managing your nickels and dimes. I'd be fine if there was no such thing as a draft. And on free agent day, you go and sign your players, whether they be kids or otherwise. Yeah, but the thing is, is like... <sighs> I don't think that would be as fun, right? Like, I'm not necessarily a big, like, college sports guy, so I don't care about it anyways. I'm sure a lot of people that are really into it do. But, like, National Signing Day, for example, it's like, that's not a, a thing that particularly interests me. And especially, uh, in this regard with so many insiders and, and, and Twitter and, and all the online media, like, all this stuff would get leaked so far in advance that there would be no intrigue on that actual day. Like, we'd pretty much know where at least all the top guys were going to sign, like, well in advance of it. So it would, it would just be yeah. like, I don't know. I, I, I understand. Like, I'm of two minds here, right? And I understand it's not a very popular thing to do in 2016. You generally need to pick one extreme and just stick to it, regardless of what happens. <laughs> but like, I the the theory behind the draft and the system definitely bugs me because I think it's very flawed, and there's some natural fixes to it that the league would never really explore because it's way too out of the box and it would really rock the boat. But well, at the same time, the draft itself is is fun, like the event leading up to it, kind of discussing it, and then actually going to it, watching it. And and then discussing all the picks afterwards for months like that. It's fun to me. Don't forget, I work in television and this is a great TV event. So I am biased. So you can say, well, Merrick, you work in TV. So of course you're going to love it because it's a great TV event. Um, But here's another wrinkle to all of it. What was the greatest? What was the most? I mean, Connor was a fascinating one last year because it's Connor McDavid. But as far as a, a team, like a 30 team NHL universe, what was the best draft lottery we've ever seen? Sidney Crosby, yeah. where all teams had a shot at him. Right now, it was weighed a little more heavy for for other you know for for certain teams, but everyone had a chance to get Sidney Crosby. I wouldn't be against the idea of not just non playoff teams, but every single team getting a shot at the first overall pick. Every team having skin in the game. You know, we do so much in this game. I'm a little high horse here. We do so much in this game. To only highlight uh, the home team, to only highlight a finite amount of teams that can participate in what will become the first overall draft pick. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we do ourselves, and then take a shot at my you know, brothers and sisters in the broadcasting fraternity here, but I think we do ourselves a real disservice in the NHL with regional hockey packages in that they tend to only focus on the home team at the exclusion of the other teams who may go further than the home team, but has a home team audience been educated or int- been led to be interested enough in the stories on the other side of the rink to care once the home team is gone and the answer is no Mm -hmm. to that so we fail the capital n nhl when it comes to regional broadcasts and this idea that all we can do is tell every single story from the home team's point of view i understand the distinction between regional and national i get that i understand the homer call and i really do love a homer call Mm -hmm. i think it's one of the great things about sports and i may be in the minority but i enjoy it but not at the exclusion of making the other team more make the other team interesting don't just make them the enemy and something to be hated and and disdained because when your team is done and that team goes on the nhl needs your pocket of fans 
to know something about that team or even be remotely interested in that team. So by the time the Stanley Cup final rolls around, we haven't lost 28 markets. Yeah. Okay. So how would you feel then about the idea of every single team having a shot at the first overall pick? Because I, I think that what we do is we focus on, you know, those non-playoff teams and they get to participate in this lottery and they get to participate in the big sexiness that is the first few picks. If it's just managing numbers and managing, you know, how much money you're able to spend for players, um, should it matter if the Stanley Cup, if the Stanley Cup, like let's say the Chicago Blackhawks win the Stanley Cup this year. One, with the Panarin bonuses, they're going to have to, they're going to have to jettison a player next year already. And two, if they get the first overall pick, they pick up Austin Matthews, they're going to have to jettison someone else, probably someone more significant, because he's going to come in and he's going to hit his bonuses, and he'll be a $3.5 million hockey player. Mm-hmm. And then that player goes out into the system. I mean, I, I'm I'm very in, in favor of this, especially like if you try to describe the system right now to someone who has no idea about anything regarding sports and you're like, so basically, yeah, we're doing this lottery where the best player available, we're deciding where he's going to go and we're rewarding all the teams that have done a horrible job this season. <laughs> it's like, why, why are you guys doing that? Well, we want to try and sort of make it even, but actually it won't really matter because there's only really four or five teams that consistently are deciding the Stanley Cup finals anyway. Anyway, so it's all kind of pointless. And well, well, like, well, well, welcome to the PDO cast, yeah. starring your host Ed Snyder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so it, it's it's. I would I would be very in favor of, even if you made the odds extremely minuscule. Like just yeah. the potential that one of these really really good teams could wind up with a guy like that is is amazing to me. And then I was actually I had Thomas Rance on yesterday, and we were discussing the idea of the proposed idea of the wheel. And it would be so fascinating come trade deadline day where like let's say you knew that uh, a contending team was going to have this really high pick all of a sudden that's a crazy asset that they could potentially move to really change the dynamics of the upcoming playoff race and it's just another kind of story to follow so i think there's a lot of good to come come from it yeah it's i mean i just i i love everything about it i i really do i hate to come keep coming back to this whole you know the, the whole tv thing about it but we've gone we get it, Jeff. You work in TV, geez. No, I know, I know. Such a loser. Yeah, whatever, TV boy. Like, of course, you like it because you want to. You want to host a sucker one day. Mm. Um, but it is. I'm always sensitive to the idea of devaluing things that really make hockey distinct. Um, and I think the the draft is one of them. Uh, the way the game, like the way the game looks, uh, I still think much more can be done with it to make it look distinct. And this may seem like a, a stretch given this conversation, but I look a lot. Of, I look. I spend so much of my time obsessing about line changes, line changes while the play is still going on, and you know, uh, wholesale line changes to me are a fascinating thing in sports that you get in hockey that you don't get in basketball and baseball and, and football. I remember talking to Eli Gold, who was a play-by-play voice of the Birmingham Bulls. Did I tell this story on the podcast? Nope. Okay, so play-by-play voice of the Birmingham Bulls, WHA in the early 70s, the mid-70s, I shouldn't say. So the Toronto Taurus, WHA, they pull up stakes and they go to Birmingham. Fresh market, right? Virgin market. And Eli, I'm talking to in 2005 during the NHL lockout. And I said, you know, who, of all the things that fans in Birmingham enjoyed about the Bulls, what was number one? 
So it's the WHA. So I thought it would be like, you know, the big slap shots. You know, the NHL was a wrist shot league, and here comes the WHA, and it's a slap shot league. I thought it was the bench-clearing brawls because they were crazy and psycho, and the guys with big mustaches and long hair because NHL was buttoned down, and uh, WHA was rock and roll. And what Eli said to me was fascinating, and I've never forgot. He said, what fans would stand up and cheer for is when players would change while the play was still going on, specifically wholesale line changes. Mm. This is Birmingham. They don't have hockey. And all of a sudden, they see five players go off the ice and five more come back on information. They would go berserk because you don't see it. And one of the things that I can't stand about the game, and we see it all the time in the playoffs, is when there's a line change of more than one or two players and the opposing team has the puck, what do they do? They throw it at the bench trying to get a too many men on the ice call. I say to myself, you're trying to wreck one of the most distinguished, this is one of the more distinguishing factors in the game right now. One of the things that makes hockey different than all these other popular North American sports, and you're trying to kill it by using line changes to draw too many men on the ice penalty. Mm-hmm. Because to the point where I would put that lacrosse box right out in front of the bench, and the moment you're in that area, you're considered off the ice just so we never get to a place where line changes are anything other than sacred in the game and not just something you can maybe whip a puck towards to try to draw a chintzy too many men on the ice penalty. Hmm. Yeah. How about that? How about that? How about that hot take for the day? Oh man. I love it. I love, I love Jeff Merrick's, (laughs) Jeff Merrick's hot takes. (laughs) About line changes. Yes. No, aren't I I interesting? What an interesting guy Merrick is. That reminded me of, uh, was it the GM meetings this year where it was like right in the middle of all the, uh, concussion talk and, and goal scoring. And then there's all these big kind of hot button issues. And it comes out that the GM spent a day talking about like goalies playing the puck or something and how that's like slowing the game down. And it's just like, everyone was just like, (laughs) wait, actually, this is like what they're spending time discussing. Like this is, this is the, the most relevant thing they can think about to kind of fix the game. (laughs) Yeah, I know. This is what you're obsessing about today, yeah. really? Yeah. Uh, so before we get out of here, let's discuss the uh, the CHL playoffs a bit because I know that uh, okay. you do some fine work with your podcast and doing the the games for Sportsnet. Um, where where are we at with it? Because I think the interesting thing this year is that none of the top three picks are involved in in these playoffs. Um, was so who is Matthew Kachuk? I guess the the highest guy that's going to go in the draft that's still playing. Uh, Matthew Kachuk of London, uh, Pierre-Luc Dubois of Cape Breton, they're one nothing up on uh, on the St. John's Sea Dogs after a big win yesterday. St. John's kind of run into a little bit of injury problems, and uh, Dubois has been outstanding. Um, but yeah, Kachuk, Olio Levy um, is, uh, you know, it's funny, I talked to one scout and I said, you know, rank the defenseman for me from, from your team. This is, a, this is an NHL team who's going to be picking in the top six. And I said, rank the defenseman for me. So I'm curious about the defenseman because we focus on Matthews and we focus on the two fins a lot. So give me your defense. And because I wanted to hear where he had Jacob Chikrin. Right. And he said, number one, Oleo Levy, London Knights. Mm-hmm. So, okay, you can make that case. He's fantastic. Number two, Mikhail Sergachev, defenseman for the Windsor Spitfires. Like, well, all right, that's good. Number three, Charlie McAvoy of Boston University. And I said, hold on a second here. Where do you have, where do you have Chikrin? Goes, we have Chikrin fourth. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know a lot of teams that have Chikrin as the number one defenseman. And many people had him coming in as a number two prospect overall. Yeah. 
um, in, in the draft this year, right, right behind Austin Matthews. Uh, but now Sarnia has been eliminated. A lot of it, you know, uh, uh, Travis Konechny got injured, uh, and that hurt the season. That big blockbuster deal between Sarnia and Ottawa was a right. jaw dropper this year. Um, well, I think I saw that Zaka himself was going to come play for the Devils in their final game, I think. Is he going to do that? I know there was so, talk yeah. about there was talk about that when Sarnia went out. Well, I mean, he almost made the team this year, right? Right. I mean, he's yeah, he's he's done being a junior hockey player. He's this this guy's ready to turn pro, and New Jersey has a really good one in Zaka. Mm. Um, but yeah, as far as you know, the uh, the, the top prospects. I mean, Mikhail Sergachev, who's going to be a top ten pick. You know, Windsor got eliminated by the Kitchener Rangers, um, so he's out. But Yulevi's still in there. Matthew Kachuk is still in there. Pierre Luc Dubois is uh, still in there. Julian Gauthier, we should mention as well, the biggest upset in the history of the QMJHL. I want to say it's close to forty points separated Valdor and Blainville Boisbriand, and they beat him in six, triple overtime style. Philippe Sanch uh, with a triple overtime heroic. Samuel Montembeau, for all you Florida Panthers fans, mm. uh, he was outstanding in that. Like, one of the great performances we've seen in his career. I wasn't too hot on Florida picking him last year, but he's been exceptional this season. He was great in that series. So Julian Goche of, uh, of Valdor has been eliminated as well. So as far as high-end players... Uh, at the draft that are still participating there's uh there's the pair from london and the one kid from cape breton cool well we'll be following that and as we get closer to the memorial cup i'd love to get you back on and we can kind of preview that although i know you'll be doing doing like podcast. Are, uh, are we gonna are we gonna get you to red deer you know what i uh the it's up to the powers that be at sportsnet and uh maybe some of them might be listening to us right now so if uh right. if they want to give in to peer pressure and, and send me i think it'd be a lot of fun but we'll see the pdo cast in red deer mm. come on that's, oh, nice! Seems like, right? a, seems like a natural fit. I got, I got, I got to hang out with you. I've, I've heard all of Todd Warner's stories. I'm sick of his. <laughs> I have someone to hang out with. Yeah, we can get, uh, we can get Damian Cox on the podcast. It'll be fun. He'll do it. Yeah, of course. Damn, yeah, we'll I'm, do it I'm, in a second. I'm good with Damian now, man. Don't. Uh, Are you guys not even being sarcastic? Yeah, no, it's, it's great. Damian is perhaps, and I, I know that, I know that people that traffic in opinion tend to make enemies pretty fast mm-hmm. online, right? Um, and you see that with Damien and you see that with, uh, with, with Steve Simmons and, you know, anyone, anyone who's, who's currency, you know, for like the 20, 30 years that these guys have been, have been doing it when, when, when that's what you do as your occupation, I mean, you can really alienate and, and isolate yourself pretty fast. The one thing that's always impressed me about Damien is how he hasn't turned into, I know people may laugh when I say this, but I've been on the road with the guy. I work with the guy. He's not this guy. He hasn't turned into a curmudgeon. He hasn't turned into someone that hates the sport that he covers because that has, you know, sort of turned the world against him and he takes it out on the sport. Like he's a guy that goes into every broadcast with a genuine curiosity uh, about things and doesn't have his mind made up uh, despite, you know, what you may say, evidence of the contrary with Damien on Twitter. But to me, he's he's one of the more mis- misunderstood guys. And I always default to someone who I believe is, his heart is in the right place. And while Damien and I differ greatly on a lot of topics when it comes to hockey, I can never doubt that at the end of it, he's coming from a place of compassion and not confrontation. And I'll default with that guy any day of the week. You know who I'll default with any day of the week? Jeff What's Merrick. That? Jeff Merrick. I will. I will always default with him. Well, let's do. Uh, let's do some defaulting then in uh, in Red Deer, buddy. You got to get yourself to the Memorial Cup. Sounds good, man. Thanks for coming on again, and we'll chat soon. Thanks, Paul. 
the Hockey PDO Cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDO Cast. <laughs> <laughs>